0: We have been following, well actually for the past couple of weeks we've done something a little different due to the disruptions of the holiday season, but we are now this morning going to get back on course of tracing the chronological life of Christ through the gospel record, and we are in the middle of that section of scripture in Matthew's gospel that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew the 6th chapter. We've already read some of this this morning, but it certainly won't hurt us to read it again. I'd like to begin in Matthew 6, verse 1. We'll read down through verse 18, so you follow, please, So we read together. And if you will excuse me, I'm going to get rid of this jacket. i was uh, glad John felt the same way a moment ago. Thank you, John. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 1. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men, to be seen by them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Therefore when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory for men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and at the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father who is in secret, and thy Father who give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when ye fast... Be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father who is in secret, and thy Father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly." To sort of get us all back up to speed after a couple of weeks break, let us consider that we are studying the beginning phases of our Lord's Galilean ministry. You will notice back in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 23, that we read that Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And in addition to that, you'll see that he heals diseases and so forth. But especially and primarily his Galilean ministry comprised of preaching specifically this thing that is called the gospel, that is, good news of the kingdom. And that reminds us that there was in fact a kingdom that had been prophesied by the Old Testament prophets that was to come, a kingdom that would be given by God to this one that Daniel saw in his vision, the Son of Man, who came nigh unto the Ancient of Days and was given a kingdom that would never pass away. The Jews lived, of course, in the expectation of one who would come as their Messiah, as their King, and inaugurate this kingdom. Now here comes the King. The Messiah is at hand the king himself goes throughout all Galilee proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of heaven is now at hand and proclaims the gospel, the good news of this kingdom. Now I would have you remember that what is being taught here is that salvation in eternal life. We read of such, say, in John 3.16, that whosoever believes on Christ would have everlasting life, and so forth. But salvation in eternal life is intimately connected to this thing called the kingdom. In other words, these are not things to be divorced from one another, that you have everlasting life over here, but you enter the kingdom of heaven over here. They're really one and the same thing. This is the kingdom of life where life reigns, as Paul will write in Romans chapter 5. You you have eternal life by entering this kingdom. Now, I'm sort of tossing those words out, and I'm assuming that everybody realizes that, but if not, just remember the story of the rich young ruler, a little later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 19, who came to Jesus with a question, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? I want eternal life. What do I have to do to get it? That's his question. You, of course, will skip fast forward here to the end of the story. And the man went away very sorrowful, you remember. He had great possessions. He was not willing to turn loose of those things. And Jesus said how hardly, how difficult it is for a rich man to what? Enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, wait a minute. He didn't say anything about entering the kingdom of heaven. He just asked for how he could have eternal life. Didn't he know he can just walked down an aisle and say a sinner's prayer, you know, and we'll give him the card that says he's now got eternal life? Where's this stuff coming about entering a kingdom? But, but that's my point, is that you don't get eternal life apart from bowing and receiving the king and entering his kingdom. Do you see what I'm talking about? These things are not to be divorced from one another. Salvation is to be found in this kingdom. Life is to be found in this kingdom. And the king is now coming and proclaiming the nature of his kingdom. As we have spoken earlier, we think of kingdoms. I know we don't really technically have things called kingdoms anymore, but what we call nations is pretty close. And when we think of a kingdom, we generally think of a geographical area. When I cross down at the Texas border, from Texas into Mexico, I have left behind the kingdom of the United States. I have entered the kingdom, or at least the dominion, of the sovereign state of Mexico. We, we think of it as going in and out, taking a physical step across a line, across a boundary or a border, right? That's how we think of entering kingdoms. But Jesus has come along, and he's teaching a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom that's spiritual in nature. It has nothing to do with where you are, your location on this planet. It has to do with the state of your heart, whether you're in or out. In fact, he will talk to Nicodemus. He says, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom." I mean, unless he's born of of spirit and water, water and spirit, he cannot enter this kingdom. It has to do with the state of his heart, not the position of his body. And furthermore, we may describe the inhabitants of a kingdom in in various ways. I go down to Mexico, and I can say, well, everybody down there sort of has, you know, they're sort of short. I mean, I like Mexico because I I look tall down there. It's the one place on earth that I look tall. Uh, they're, they're also short and, and they, they have dark skin and black hair. Now you say, well, then if I'm short and have dark skin and brown hair, I'm a Mexican. No. No, you see, I'm not telling you what you gotta do to be in that kingdom. I'm just describing to you what they look like down there. Just as I could say in Germany, they all have uh, blonde hair and blue eyes. They like wiener schnitzel. I'm describing the characteristics. Jesus has now in chapter 5 in what we call the Beatitudes given us a description of those that are in his kingdom. Just like I would say in Germany they have blonde, hair, blue eyes and eat sauerkraut. Jesus says in his kingdom, in this thing, this kingdom of heaven, what, what do they look like? They're poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's who's got it. That's who's in it. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed you, you want to know what they eat? Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. Do You see how he's describing the characteristics of those that are citizens of this kingdom. And then, of course, any kingdom has to have not only a king and not only subjects, but it also has to have a rule of life. I mean, you live in the United States of America, we like to say we're free here. We've reached freedom, you know, the guy, you know, flees from a communist country and makes it into the United States, and he's free. And then he learns about the IRS. You see, he's not free absolutely, is he? Neither are we free absolutely ever in this life. One old preacher said, man is made to be ruled, and he will be ruled by someone or something. And that is so true. We are not free absolutely, but we come into the kingdom of Christ, and we learn that there is a law, a rule, an expected behavior. Jesus had said throughout this sermon, you have heard that it hath been said of old, don't do this. Don't do that. But I'm telling you, but I say unto you, this is the way it is. And we have seen in the previous message, you may recall, Jesus defining our relationships sort of, as we would say, on the horizontal plane. My relationship to my fellow man. How should I live in this kingdom? How should I live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, as one who is bowing the knee to the king of kings, Jesus Christ? How now should I live? And what we learn, if you remember, if you were here, if you heard, if you were awake, all of those things possibly uh, coming together, if it hit you, you will remember that we learned That what Jesus expects of us involves more than just the actions of our bodies. It is not enough, he teaches, simply not to murder someone, not to commit adultery with someone, not to lie to someone. It is not enough to not murder someone if we go around and use our tongues, for instance, as a weapon against our neighbors. It's not enough not to commit adultery if in our heart we lust after a woman to commit adultery with her. It's not enough simply not to tell lies if there is no love of the truth within us. All of these things Jesus has just covered in the previous chapter dealing with what he expects of you and I who enter his kingdom. How now should we live? Or to use Francis Schaeffer's Famous uh, title of the series the young people are going to be watching over the next few weeks in the Sunday school class, How Then Should We Live? How are we supposed to live in this kingdom of Christ? Now, may I hurry and may I make sure there's no mistake on this point. You do not get into the kingdom by deciding to straighten up and fly right. You don't get into the kingdom by being meek and mourning over your sin, and so forth. Those are descriptions. Those are characteristics. They are not how you get in. You get in by grace and mercy. You get in by laying hold of the grace and life that is in Jesus Christ, what he bought for us at the cross. It is his work at Calvary that lays the foundation, inaugurates this kingdom, if you will. And we get in it purely by mercy, by grace. But, Once in it, how then should we live? Well, we've studied the horizontal relationships this morning. You'll notice as we read our text, we deal now with what we would call the vertical direction here. That being in this kingdom not only involves how I behave to my fellow man this way, it also involves activity and conduct in the vertical direction. My life to God. Did you notice that? Especially three particular areas. Giving, praying, and fasting. Religious stuff. You say, well, I don't like religious stuff. In fact, I I know preachers who contend that Christianity is not a religion. It's not a religion. It really involves a person. The person the work of Christ. Well, I know that. Yes, that's true. But. You get down to the definition of religion, and Christianity certainly fits. Christianity involves not only our life towards Christ in the faith, our life towards our fellow man in love, but it also involves our life towards God. In fact, for the first time, it involves our life towards God. There was a time when we were dead to God, and God was dead to us. We gave no thought to such things as giving, I mean, we passed the offering plate a moment ago, and some of you can remember of time, you you would have thought, my, lands, why are people putting money, giving good money, putting it in that plate? What are they doing? Are they nuts? Why would anyone want to spend time praying? Fasting? Give me a break. I mean, my life was consumed with serving my flesh and the appetites of my flesh. Why would I want to deny an appetite of my flesh? I'm trying to figure out how to gratify the appetites of my flesh. You understand, there was a time in your life when you were absolutely cut off from such things as what Jesus is describing here. But life towards God certainly involves these, what we call, religious activities. I can prove that to you in our text by pointing out that Jesus presumes that those in his kingdom are going to be involved in these kinds of activities. Did you notice that Jesus, in talking of these three areas, giving alms, praying, and fasting, does not introduce them by saying, Now, should you pray if you decide that you want to fast? If the possibility arises that you want to get he doesn't put it that way he says when you when you give alms when you pray when you fast he just assumes that's what you and I are going to be involved in that's the kinds of activity that's what the people do who are now alive towards god there is a behavior that we would expect of a man that is alive towards God. There's behavior that we expect of you. If you're alive, I expect you every now and then to take a breath. I expect you every now and then to eat a meal. Right? You see, that's what the lost man does not understand about Christianity. He looks at these kinds of duties, giving, and praying, and fasting, things like that, you know, religious stuff, going to church. But we can add a lot of things to our list here. Studying the Bible. On and on we go. And, and the lost man looks at these things and, of course, they're absolutely distasteful to him. He has no use for them. I I have seen people sit under, uh, and, and it may be because it's my preaching, you understand, but I have seen people come in and sit under my preaching that uh, you would think they're being tortured. There must be some kind of cruel Chinese water torch. I mean, sit and squirm and, and look at their clock and wonder, when is this fool going to get through so we can get out of here? I mean, it, it's the, the, these activities, praying and giving and fasting and coming to church and being with God's people and studying the Word are, are about as useless to a lost man as a whistle on a plow. He has no use for it. Utterly distasteful, and he just assumes it is for you and me too. So he assumes that you and I, when we come to church, when we pray, when we give, that we're doing it because we're hypocrites. He assumes that we enjoy it about as much as he enjoys it, which is none. And so why are we doing it? We are doing it to be seen of man. We're putting on an act, or the original meaning of the word hypocrite in Greek. Was, it was a word that was used to describe what we call an actor. One who's playing a part, playing a role. He assumes that's what you and I are doing this morning. We're here trying to pretend we're good people. We're just like everybody else, but we're, we're pretending. We're going through a religious, you know, whatever, another, doing our religious gymnastics, trying to impress each other with how good we are. We have no love for the activity itself. We're just here doing our thing, paying our penance, as it were, because this is what is expected of good people. He does not understand that prayer to the Christian is as vital as breathing. He does not understand that studying the Word of God to the Christian is is vital, more vital than eating. It's his bread. He doesn't understand that this is where we commune with God, that we enjoy the presence of God and bask in the glory of God. You see what I'm saying? You could say, well, this is just nothing but a works religion. Well, that's like saying, well, you know, I had a hard night last night. Man, I had to work hard at breathing all night long. You know, just tuckered out today, just plum wore out. I was staying up all night long trying to breathe. No, breathing is the natural duty, the natural activity of a person who's physically alive. And things like giving, praying, fasting, which involves denying the flesh in all of the areas of life, things like that is just the natural activity of one who is alive to God. It's his life. It's his delight. So my first point, and I begin with this because this sometimes is easily overlooked in what Jesus is saying here, is Jesus is not saying now that you and I should not pray, should not give, should not fast, should not be involved in religious activities. He is assuming that you and I will be, because he says, when you, when you, when you. But the thrust of our passage is, of course, to forbid hypocrisy in these activities that is Jesus three times speaks of doing these things to be seen of men. the man blowing the trumpet to make sure you know that he's giving his hard-earned money the man standing on the corner so you'll be sure and see that he's praying the man who is disfiguring his face so you'll know he's fasting I remember Jay Wimberly our buddy down in Florida he pastored a church down in Winterhaven a few years ago, and he was saying that there was a man in his church that hurt his back. And uh, anyway, couldn't work and so forth. They gave him one of these back braces to wear. You normally, of course, wear them under your clothing, but this guy came to church with this back brace over his suit. And Jenny asked him, Why are the, in the world are you wearing that back brace? Out here? Well, if I didn't, who would know that I was hurting You know, that's the point. I want to make sure if I'm hurting, everybody knows it. And so it is with the hypocrite. He's fasting. He's hungry. He's hurting. He wants to make sure you know it. Now, Jesus quickly points out that there is a reward for these people. Oh, don't think that they don't do it for what they get out of it. They're doing it for something. There's a reward that they're obtaining. And what is it? When men turn and say, oh my, look at that holy man, look at that holy man, look at that righteous fellow over there, that's their reward. That's their entire reward. That's all the reward they're ever going to get. So never be envious of the hypocrite. I mean, whatever, don't be envious of the attention he's getting because that's the only reward he'll ever get for all his trouble. That's what he's in it for, for what he can get out of it. You see, this is simply a matter of using religion, in some cases using true religion, to serve the appetites of his flesh, to puff him up, to appear righteous in the eyes of men. Never envy such a man. He's getting his reward. He's getting it now. There are many who in the guise of worshiping God, do so out of selfish motivation. They are described in the words of our Lord as wolves in sheep's clothing. Now why would a wolf put on sheep's clothing? Just one little observation. Generally, wolves don't put on sheep's clothing when they're with the wolves. That's probably self-defeating. You put on sheep's clothing when you're in with the sheep. That is, you want to look like one of them. The sheep's clothing is, of course, the exterior. It feels like wool. It looks like wool. It looks like the real thing. But underneath, there's not the heart of the sheep. There's the heart, the nature of a ravenous wolf. Now, one way to tell wolves in sheep's clothing and real sheep apart in case you're wondering. You know, sometimes you can't tell in the dark a wolf's in sheep's clothing feels about like a sheep. But if you really want to tell a wolf in sheep's clothing apart from a true sheep, one way you can do it is watch what they eat. Sheep eat sheep food. Wolves eat sheep. They devour. They don't love the sheep. Oh, they love the sheep in one sense. They love to eat the sheep. They love to attack and to devour the sheep. Sheep eat sheep food. That is, our nature comes out again by the things we feed on, by the activity of life. Jim Gables points out that the Beatitudes, these descriptions of those who are in the kingdom of Christ... That these are the things that Satan finds it impossible to counterfeit. Satan can counterfeit, as we see from our texts, giving. Do you realize the devil may have his people give? His people can counterfeit praying. His people can counterfeit things like fasting. That's what Christ is describing. Men who have no heart for it, inwardly. They have no heart to do these things, but they do it externally for what they can get out of it. Self-gratification of one sort or another, to be seen of men, to look good in the eyes of others. This is what respectable people do, so that's why I'm doing it. But what Satan cannot counterfeit is this attitude of humility, the meek, the spiritual poverty. Blessed are they who are poor in spirit, who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That only God and God's Spirit can produce in the heart of a man. That's what makes sheep, in the sense of God's people, really sheep. And so a lost man may go through all the outward activity of religion. And by the way, in our day and time, our churches are filled with them. Filled with them. Of people who go through the outward motions of religion. Or well, they do all of these things because it's what's expected of good people. If I'm going to be well thought of in my community, if I'm going to be perceived as a good person, this is what good people do. And they go through all the motions of religion, but they have no heart This is not the natural thing. It's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's the most unnatural thing for them to do, and they can't wait when they get away from here and toss aside the sheep's clothing and go running with the wolves. So the thrust of the Lord's teaching here is to utterly forbid hypocrisy. Now, he is not forbidding public worship. You can read the rest of the New Testament and see that men, when they came together, the people of Christ, they would give of their substance. They would publicly pray. Sometimes they fasted. It's not that he is forbidding public demonstration of these things, but he is forbidding us doing these things to be seen of man. In other words, the, the buzzword in computer circles these days is whizzy you guys know what that mean? What you see is what you get. You know there was a time that word processors went through that transformation to be a whizzywig word processor. Well, the Christian is to be a whizzywig kind of person. What you see is what you get. What you see on Sunday morning is what you get on Monday morning. What you see inside these walls is what you see outside those walls. The same person that you see sitting here in the pew is the same person that you will see out there at the workplace, there in the home, there in the school, wherever you seem. If there is no duplicity, there's a transparency and an honesty before God and man in the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Don't think, don't think, that men won't do many religious things for what they can get out of it for the wrong reasons. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 in that love chapter says, Though I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, I'm nothing. He suggests that people would give away all of their substance He suggests in fact that men would absolutely uh, even undergo martyrdom for the wrong reasons. Can you imagine such a thing? That this motivation is so powerful I might even give my life. Presumably for the sake of Christ and all the while be doing it so I would be well thought of. Now you say how absurd, Brother Mark. Surely you can't be serious. May I take you back to a time in the days of the persecutions of Christians by the Romans, there is in existence a letter where one of the Roman provincial governors is describing his actions to Caesar and he's saying that he killed these Christians and killed it to such an inordinate extreme that men actually were willing to come and to be put to death so that they could be remembered as a martyr, have a holiday in the Roman Catholic Church named after them. Can you imagine such a thing? But that is how powerful this motivation is to be thought well of, to be held in high esteem by our fellow man. I'm grateful in one little sense that you know there there are benefits that come to us because we are small, obscure and we're not I don't know if you've checked the mirror this morning, but we're not the beautiful people. <laughs> We're, we're not the movers and shakers, are we? No, I doubt, seriously, people are going to see us on the street and say, My, my, he goes to that church over there. Man, that's a wonderful place. That's Man, that's just full of wonderful... That's probably not our reputation. I hope that our reputation is, is that we are a hospital for hypocrites. An asylum... For sinners, that on the one hand we come because this is what we are, but we come to be delivered. Well, I won't. I'll dwell on that in a minute. Let me just point out: Did you see in all of this how humility is being enjoined? I I was talking to Alan just weeks so ago, and we got we got on this topic. I don't even remember how Alan, but uh, we were talking about the Lord's Prayer, and it's interesting as. Our Lord teaches us how to pray. And of course, in this whole thing, the Sermon on the Mount is sort of, the atmosphere of it is humility. It's the poor in spirit who are there. It's the meek who inherit the earth. He even teaches us how to think of ourselves as he teaches us how to pray. Do you notice the sentences of the Lord's Prayer? And ask yourself as you think of these sentences, who would pray these things? Our Father, who art in heaven. Now, who calls God their father. Well, that's easy. It's his children, a child, speaks of God as a father. Okay? Do you realize that that is the highest position that any creature in this universe can have? The calling of a child of God? Do you realize that the angels under which of the angels said he at any time thou art my son. I know there's a sense the angels are his sons by creation, but not in the sense that we are by adoption. Do you understand that that is about his, that's, that's it. That's, that's his, you say, what is the greatest thing that a creature could be called? A son of God. Not in the son of God sense that Jesus was his son, but in the adoptive sense that we hold that position. Then he goes on. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, who wants God's name to be hallowed? Well, that's the petition of a worshiper, isn't it? Someone who would worship God. The angels may not be able to call God Father, but they certainly desire his name to be reverenced and hallowed. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Now, who would pray for God's kingdom to come? Would it not be one who is a citizen of that kingdom? See, we've come from son to worshiper to citizen. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who, who asks for God's will to be done? Is that, that not the prayer of a servant? Is that not what the servant is concerned about? That the will of the master be done? You see, we have gone from son to worshiper to citizen, to servant, but now we read the words, give us this day. Who asks give? Well, the beggar asks give. And then the next phrase is not just give, but forgive. Who asks for forgiveness? not just a beggar. Now we find it is the prayer of a sinner. You see, a man to show up at your back door saying give me some food is one thing, but a man who has violated you, who has sinned against you, who comes saying forgive, that's something else. And then he says, not just forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, but deliver us from evil. Who prays that? I'll tell you who prays that. Someone who is in danger of sinning again. Deliver us. Save me. Do you understand that in the Lord's Prayer, the Lord has brought us from the highest position that we can have, any creature could have in this universe, brought us down to the very lowest. That I am this, I am this, I am this, but oh, I am this, I am a sinner and I am in need of deliverance because I am nothing. Thine is the power and the glory. Do you see, he is teaching us in the very model prayer to think of ourselves as unable and God as our all in all. Now, I just toss that out to think of why is it that he leads us in this progression. It sounds like he's bringing us down, 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 and down, but may I suggest that in actuality, God, he's bringing us up, 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 and up. That in my confession of these things, of who I am, I'm actually, when I'm weak, when I'm empty, that's when I'm closest to God. Well, I won't belabor that point. May I point out that in the whole passage here, Jesus is concerned that our worship, be compatible with the nature of our God. God is spirit. He is not impressed by the fact that you drugged your body out of bed this morning and put your body physically in this building. Now that may impress me. Hey, I like it when we got, you know, lots of people here, pews are covered. Hey, I like that. It's impressive to me that your body's here. But I know from experience, because I've sat out there where you're sitting, I know from experience that I can be out there with a big old smile on my face, and my mind a thousand miles away, I am no more attuned to the things of God and into the worship of God than than a dog. Right? You see, God is not impressed with the fact that you just got your body involved, that your body gave some money, that your body sang some songs. He is spirit. And he looks upon your heart. Furthermore, we dare not insult our God by worshiping him as the heathen do. You'll notice Jesus makes a couple of references to this fact. The heathen, they as it were, are in the business of informing their God what's na- needed. There his sort of Johnny on the spot. You see, the gods of the heathen weren't too smart weren't too powerful, and weren't very good. So the heathen had to devote a lot of his time in prayer, number one, informing his not-so-smart God what the real situation was, what the real needs are on the spot. And secondly, he wasn't too good, their God, so they had to spend a lot of time manipulating their God, bribing their God. That's A lot of the heathen worship worked like that. Do you remember the... uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, that encounter on Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal trying to get the attention of their God. Oh, Elijah, sort of, I can envision him with a weed in his mouth sitting under the shade tree, egging them on. You know, hey, better yell a little louder. I believe, you know, he's probably asleep. You better wake him up. Oh, I know what it is. He's on a journey. But you remember what happened in the afternoon? Those prophets of Baal jumped up and down, leaping up and down on their altar and cutting themselves with knives and lancets. Now, why would they do that? Because you see, their God is not a very good God. They're trying to manipulate Him, trying to bribe Him. Jesus is warning us to ever think of God in that light. We're not his Johnny on the spot, informing him of things he does does not know. In fact, he says, before you even ask, he knows what you have need of. The reason we ask God is not because he doesn't know. Neither are we ever to think that our God must be manipulated. That he's not a good God. That he's not willing. Number one, that he's not able to give these things. Or number two, that he's not willing. We are to come, as it were, in faith. Believing that our God is good and He is able and He is kind, He is merciful and He is gracious. We come asking because our God delights in the prayers of His people. Now I don't want to chase a rabbit here, but I've told you many times that prayer, as simple a thing as it is, is one of the most difficult things to define. And it's to define how it works. I don't know. Does prayer change things? That's what we read on the bumper stickers. Does prayer change God? Does prayer change you? I I don't know how it works. I wished I did. I have spent a lifetime, as it were, studying this mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Why is it that we have to pray if God is already predestined what He's going to do? If His will is fixed? Why is it that He... I, I don't know. I don't have the answer. All I know is this, that when I'm in a plane and the engines have failed... And I'm heading to the ground. Nobody has to stand over me and tell me all to pray. I do it by reflex, knee jerk reaction. And the most hardened atheist put him on that airliner, plunging to the ground, and he's going to be crying out to God. Instinctively, instinctively, he knows there's a God. And it is as natural as breathing. And oh, I see the encouragement in God's Word for me to come and to bear my heart, lay it open before my God. And to ask Him that He loves for me to ask Him to do what He's already decided to do. That's the mystery. And the very fact that I have a burden on my heart to ask is a good indication that this may well be what He intends to do. Where did the burden come from? Why is my heart heavy about this particular matter? It may well be that God has laid the burden on my heart that I ask for the very thing that he delights to give. Oh, it's a mystery. All I know is prayer is God cutting you and me in on the action. He wants me to ask for what he wants to give me. May that be an encouragement to you. Oh, I've got to quit. So much to say. Two things. I'll quit. Two things, I promise. I promise on Barry's life that I'll quit after two things. (laughs) The, uh, The point that Jesus makes, they have their reward. And he contrasts that, the reward of the hypocrite that is now, right now, he contrasts that with your and my reward. Your Father shall reward you openly. Future. They, they have theirs now. We get ours later. Oh, never forget that. I remember that old story about an old missionary that had spent his life serving Christ in a faraway land. Old, coming home from the mission field back home to die he's on an airliner with one of these up-and-coming young rock stars and he got to the airport and there was a huge crowd of people gathered waiting on this young rock star to get off the plane and they made everybody else sit while they let this guy off and of course the crowds were yelling and screaming all the acclaim and by the time this old missionary finally got off the plane everybody gone He's all by himself, coming down the steps. And he said, you know, Lord, this just doesn't seem right. Here's this young man, not even dry behind the ears. And look at the glory, look at the claim, look, look at what's waiting on him. And here now I've come home after years of serving you on the mission field, and there's no one, no one waiting on me. And he said, then it was like he heard a voice saying, but son, you're not home yet. Mm. No, not yet. But oh my, the day that's described in Romans chapter 8, when God shall manifest his sons in glory. I mean, the kings of this earth can do a pretty good job when they want to glorify their sons. They want to really put on the dog. Can you imagine that day when the God of the universe glorifies his children? And then the second thing. I know the world looks and says, oh, but that's just a bunch of hypocrites up there. And I have to shake my head and say, well, yeah, I'm afraid you're right. As much as I wish and desire that my heart was wholly and solely this morning dedicated to the things of God in the worship of Jesus Christ, as much as I would like to say that I have no thought whatsoever for man, for the esteem of man and the praise of man, can I honestly stand here and say this morning that I sure hope you like my sermon? You think I'm not immune from that, wanting to be thought well of, to be highly esteemed? Oh, I wish I could say it were so that my heart was so singularly devoted to the things of God that I took no thought whatsoever. For the praise of man or what you thought of me or any other man thought of me. That only thing that mattered to me was what God thought of me. I wish hypocrisy were something that were far gone from my life, but I have to say no. I find it and I find it every day that I live, and I suspect you do too. Yes, it's full of a bunch of hypocrites. But you know I'm glad they're here, because I don't know anywhere else a bunch of hypocrites gonna get any help. They're sure, certainly not going to get it out there in the world. The world, you talk about a bunch of hypocrites. The world is full of the proud and the arrogant and the boastful people putting on a, a show, a parade, a front. I mean, go find the rich folks and look at the Donald Trumps of this world. Go find the powerful people, the Ted Turners of this world. Go go find the, the artists, the athletes strutting in the end zone. The athlete or the the musician strutting on stage. Look at me. Ain't I something? You want to see hypocrisy? That's where you see it. The world is full of it. At least my friend here, we bow the knee and we study the words of one who taught us not to do these things to be seen in man. We have a Savior who is, about as, who is as far from hypocrisy as one can get. And we follow in His steps. And we're imperfect copies, you understand. But we're striving to be like the Master. He who took no thought of what man thought of Him. Yes, we're just a hospital for hypocrites. So like a doctor saying, I hate to go to the hospital. It's full of sick people. What do you think a hospital's for? If you don't like sick people, what are you doing in medicine? And so it was that our Savior says, I didn't come. He who was the great physician said, I didn't come to heal the whole. I came to heal the sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I come to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, calling upon you to cast off hypocrisy. I who speak to myself as well as to you. My friend, may we be real. May we be genuine. May we not be fake and phony. The world is full of the fake and phony. May we be real and genuine. May it be forbidden in the church of Jesus Christ. That we pretend, that we strut, that we boast in our arrogance of who we are and what we are. May we lose ourselves in boasting of who our Savior is. Not of what we've done and accomplished, but what He did and what He accomplished. May we be lost in His glory rather than in our own. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, may You speak to our hearts this day. Deliver us, deliver us from the evil of hypocrisy. Oh, Father, there are so many corners, nooks, and crannies in our lives, dark closets where we see these things still rearing their ugly head. Father, we ask that you might root them all out for the sake of Jesus our Savior. May we be wholly devoted unto him. Lord, thank you for loving us. My, how could you when we were strutting around here in the world thinking that we had the world by the tail, boasting, bragging, thinking ourselves sufficient. And all the while, all the while, you were the one giving us life. You're the one giving blessing into our hands. You're the one giving breath in our nostrils. And we used it to puff ourselves up. Thank you, Father, that you did not give us what we deserved, what we had earned. Thank you that you did not do to us what we would have done were the circumstances reversed. Thank you that you're a good God and you delight in mercy. You delight in grace and you've called us to come and follow your son, Jesus Christ. You sent him to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to wash us from our sins in his own blood, to cleanse us from an iniquity that we would spend forever in hell seeking to rectify your broken law. Thank you that you sent Christ. And now thank you that we follow in His steps, that we're in a kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of godliness, where we're alive to our God and we want to serve our God. We want to give of ourselves, we want to serve you and bless you and commune with you. We want to know you. Thank you that you've given us such a heart. For we remember a day and those desires were far, far from us. Lord, speak to hearts today. We know not the condition of men. We can't see the inside as you can. Lord, if there's those here today outside of your kingdom, would you speak to their heart and bring them to the end of their sails, the end of their rope, that they might cast themselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ our Savior, that they might come to him and find life might turn from this world, turn from sin, turn from self, and embrace a Savior. And Lord, if there's those here today who have followed Christ, who are His, but Lord, wrestle with the divided heart, wrestling with these things, Lord, might You purge us and cleanse us and make us real and genuine. Forgive us our foolishness. Pretending you can't see what's on the inside. Lord, help us to be real. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.